Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, the only show that dares to be both on topic and usually on location. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept. Continuing our focus on social justice, we have the same group of folks that we've had together in previous episodes. And this time we're talking about data and relying on data and whether you can rely on it and how data can be biased and how you can overcome that bias. But before we begin, let's quickly meet the panel. I'm Stephen Foskett, organizer of Tech Field Day and publisher of Gestalt IT. You can find me online at gestaltit.com and at sfoskett on Twitter. And I'm Leona Dotto. I am a head geek. Yes, that's actually my job title at SolarWinds, which is neither solar nor wind. It's a monitoring software vendor because naming things is hard. And you can find me uh, on the Twitters, as my kids hate when I say, at Leona Dotto. And I also blog and pontificate at adottosystems.com. Hi, I'm Karen Lopez. I'm Data Chick on Twitter. I blog at datamodel.com. I'm a data evangelist, so I'm biased for team data. And I also enjoy talking about ethical issues with data. Hi, I'm Josh Fidel. I'm a principal solution architect at Advisix. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at jcefidel or on my blog at thevfidel.com. Hi, I'm Pumla Schmidt. I'm a cloud advocate at a little company that I'm not sure if you've heard of, Microsoft. Uh, I, you can also find me on the Twitters as uh, at Exchange Goddess, where I'll talk about tech, a little bit of food, and maybe some crabs and lobsters and wine. Well, thank you. It's great to have you guys back together again. Um, this has been just a really exciting and interesting series where we try to figure out if there are lessons that we can take from our technology background and bring to the world, uh, the, the world, period, not the world of anything, just the world. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think has been sort of, uh, I guess, filtering through our discussions, the last few discussions, is this whole question of trust and trusting data and whether you can trust data. And, and I guess the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, of course you can trust it. It's a fact, right? I think a lot of us like to think that, you know, there's, there's facts, there's facts, and, and you can trust facts, right? Um, how could data possibly be biased? Um, Leon, do you want to kick us off with that? Well, I, I'm going to start off by saying that um, the data that you record is the data that you record, but that doesn't mean that it is true. That doesn't mean that it is accurately reflecting the reality that you are ascribing to it. It's sort of the data version of the old computer cliche about, you know, computers do exactly what you tell them to, not exactly what you want them to. The data is going to show you exactly what it is, not exactly what you want it to be to mean. Um, and I think that's where some of the breakdown comes. One of the other things as well with dealing with biases in data is trying to better understand what Leon's talking about is where did it come from? Does it have sample bias, which is a type of bias? And that reminds me of when, you know, maybe in the previous election cycle in the US, the federal election cycle, a lot of pollsters were calling landlines to understand you know, where the public was leaning towards elections. And then everyone pointed out that a good majority of Americans no longer have landlines and people who do have physical landlines tend to be older 
and less um, tech advanced because most of us have all gone to VoIP or only have cell numbers. And we had to change that in how we collect data because we were getting inaccurate results to polls because there was sample bias that people didn't understand was there. And, and, and it's interesting when you say how, how we get our data because I think, I think we've all worked in systems, uh, and we touched on this briefly in, in monitoring in our last podcast, um, how you get the data, where you get the data from, how the data is accessed, is it possible to manipulate the data, do you cherry pick your data when presenting that data? I think we've all had, uh, you know, engagements in the enterprise world where, you know, two vice presidents can look at the same presentation and tell you two completely different things about the data that's being portrayed. Now, if we expand this out to the real world, because, you know, that is the, the point of this podcast, uh, if you look at the changes that have been made between the CDC getting data on COVID deaths, the HHS now running uh, collection of COVID data, you look at the companies, uh, there's a Tele one, I forget the name of it, Tele something, and then there's also Palantir, who are both involved in now collecting that data. Um, and you have to wonder, you know, what are your governance schemes? How are you making sure that data isn't abused, misused, et cetera? Um, I think we all see that. And, and, you know, if you are presenting your data with bias, it's obvious that you're not going to have a, a full picture of what exactly is happening. Well, and, and speaking to the COVID data, there's, there's another piece of it, which is not malice and it's not even bad data. It's just data that isn't fully baked. Um, for the course of the pandemic, I've been pulling the statistics for where I live in Ohio and Ohio has been very diligent in publishing its statistics every day at two o'clock in the afternoon which is nice. I mean, it's nice to have an update it before the end of the workday, right? But there is a lot that can happen between 2 p.m. and say midnight or whatever it is. So the numbers that I get from the Ohio COVID response website is vastly different. And in some cases, half the numbers that I'll get from John Hopkins, which is tallied and published at 2 a.m. the following day. So that's not a failure in data, it's simply a matter of me as the consumer understanding that a 2 p.m. publish is going to be somewhat lacking in some ways. I, I can't use it for the same decision making that I can use the 2 a.m. data. And, and Karen and I were talking about this and she said, I can't even trust that. Um, I just wanna say, I think with data, there's always gonna be some bias there's always, always going to be some manipulation if humans are involved, right? Because humans inherently, we have a natural bias for something. So depending on where you're putting this data, that person that has to enter it manually, they're going to have a bias. Unless you have a system that automatically pulls that data into whatever other system, you're gonna have less, less bias, but then there's an algorithm that's built into that to pull that, right? So there's, sort of a, a bias already built into the algorithm and the function. So can we really get rid of all the bias, all the manipulation? Because if we go back to an enterprise where you got to print reports, back to Josh's point of, you know, you, you could have, you know, the same directors looking at a report and they're going to, they may see 
you know, different results. You could, same type of data, but the results will look different depending on how the data is manipulated, how it's presented to that particular person. I mean, I've, I'm guilty of it. <laughs> I don't say manipulating data, but just providing specific data that, you know, certain people just want to see. It's not all the data, but that's not what they wanted to see. So is that data manipulation? In my eyes, yeah, I'm a governance person. So in a way that, that, that is data manipulation, if they're not seeing everything, if they're only seeing just a sliver of it, because that's what, you know, that person wants to see. They don't want to see the negative stuff. That's so true. And I wanted to point out that, you know, statistical bias isn't necessarily um, bad actors, right? We know they just exist because bias really isn't a negative term. You recognize bias. Like most surveys are biased towards people who like to participate in surveys. And that, those are not necessarily representative of an entire population. That's the whole nature of data collection. Something like COVID data tracking in theory doesn't have that uh, sample bias because you know, reporting all cases and all pieces of it. Where bias comes into it is the fact that one organization or one jurisdiction is collecting data about these types of cases and only these, like only in hospital or only confirmed by uh, the not the quick tests, but the longer tests or only reporting antibodies. And that's where a data professional, you know, this is part of the data literacy that most people don't have. It's the same sort of thing of when we collect data about our systems. I remember some large system outage and I can't, it's been so long that I can't remember who the company was, but they kept reporting all their systems as, are up. And that was because they were only querying the monitoring system that had a bug. And it was a homegrown monitoring system. The bug got introduced by a change in some other part of the pipeline. And even though they had evidence that systems were down, they weren't acting on it because their monitoring system was saying, hey, everything's up and running great, but it basically didn't get any down reports and therefore everything was up. So that reminds me, so to both of those points, Pumla and Karen, both of those points, one of the things that strikes me is it's not just about manipulation or bias, it's also about on the consumer side. So you were talking, Josh, you were talking about the two VPs who could walk away with completely different information. I know multiple executives in every company I've ever worked for who have said something like, if there's more than three bullets on a slide, I don't want it. If your email takes up more than the top third of my screen, I'm deleting it. I won't read anything that takes me longer than, well, okay, some problems are actually complicated and they require some explanation. Some data sets are actually a little bit more involved. Like you cannot be so, I, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, please prioritize your most important things for me. But sometimes it is we, the consumer of data, who create the bias itself by asking the provider to winnow down this very complicated, very detailed thing into three bullet points on a slide with a pretty graphic next to it because I'm bored or whatever it is, right? I mean, and, and we all do that, right? You know, I, I'm guilty of putting the bicycle together before I read the instructions. We, you know, 
we we all do those things. So I think sometimes it's not, I just want to make sure that we, we're clear that it's not always about malice or a, a failure to execute properly or anything like that. It, there's a lot of reasons why that bias ends up in the system. And on that note, let's just, um, you know, kind of get back to the core question of here, your data is lying to you. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe you're the one <laughs> who's expecting too much. And I, I love what you're saying there, Liam, because it's, it's so true, right? I mean, we want an easy number. We want, is the system up or down? Well, that doesn't let us know if the system isn't performing properly or if it's been compromised by, you know, security-wise or if it's, you know, I mean, maybe it's, you know, just half sideways. I mean, it's this, and it's the same with the pandemic. We want a number. Give me a number. What's today's number? But there is no today's number. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, you learn from listening in and looking really in, de in depth is that um, the actual number doesn't come out for months and months. I mean, th there's the there's the the instant I don't know temperature, but then there's the real the real number that comes later. Um, you know, this leads me to the, the sort of the core question here is how do we overcome this? And I think that as consumers of data, whether it's in at work or at home, um, I think the one way that one thing we can do to address this is by looking for a diversity of data and understanding that none of this data is telling me, you know, quote, the answer. What we're getting is an answer to a question assuming that it hasn't been manipulated or, you know, otherwise, you know, messed around with, we're getting an answer to a question and it's up to us, the consumer, to get us a, a variety, a diversity of answers and then judge that ourselves. And that's unfortunately a really annoying and unsatisfying situation. <clears throat> I, I hate to do this, but I actually have to quote Shrek right now. Life is an onion. It has layers. And, and the reason I say this is, okay, so, so Leon's been downloading COVID numbers from John Hopkins and, and from the state of Ohio. Okay, cool. Uh, I would add, hey, there's another data point that I just saw the other day that the New York Times released that shows a number of excess deaths in the United States. And that number compared to, you know, I forget if it was a median or an average or just whatever it was over the last few years, we're actually 200,000 people higher than, uh, the, than the official number, shall we say. So the official number is in the 170s. Uh, the excess death number was over 200,000. I think it was like 211,000 or something like that. Um, that's a gap. But inside that gap is probably the truth somewhere. We'll probably just never know exactly what it was. So, so getting as many layers of data as possible, when, it, it, you know, when you're looking at your business, you, you can't, I'm sorry, you can't put the data for your business in three bullet points. It just doesn't work that way. Right. And I'm going to make it really clear for IT people because, you know, a statistic that every IT person knows and, and for whatever reason wants, CPU utilization. We all get it, right? I want to know CPUs. I run task manager on the side because I want to see what my, my laptop CPU is doing. I run it on my systems, whatever. And that's what my CPU is doing. No, it's not. No, it's not. 
you're getting 15 minute average, five minute average, 10 minute average, but I'm collecting it every three minutes. Yes, you're getting the rolling 15 minute average. You're not getting the CPU or CPUs at that moment. And you know, the, the point I was making earlier is you have to recognize that. You have to make sure that you're making the right decision knowing that the number that you're getting is the 15 minute average. That's what's being collected. And sure, it's rolling and whatever, and you get to about the right place, but it's still not precise versus somebody who's running top on their system or whatever and really looking at it. And you just have to know that. So the same thing with the COVID numbers is what is this number? There's all of that. I know here in Canada, our COVID dashboards um, or at least, yeah, in Canada, they have a vertical blue line that goes, that makes a mark for the last seven days of data. And it literally says near that blue ver vertical line, you can't rely on the numbers that are newer than this, just because. And some of the reasons are, we've already seen this, is that newer data you should have less confidence in it because you don't know if three jobs failed last night or over the weekend and they're still collecting it, if two major hospitals in Toronto were unable to report their results because of some problem they had, or that two sets of files were double uploaded. It just takes time for data, especially when it comes from potentially hundreds or thousands of sources for you to be able to do all your checks and rectify them in that time. And this happened in the state of California that the governor announced very low numbers for COVID cases that were recent, that they finally got it under for a few days under a certain number, but it turned out there were major integration problems with the data collection service and the numbers were incredibly underreported. So someone lost their job over it and the governor had to say, the buck stops here. I shouldn't have celebrated this data when my data people were telling me I can't rely on that data. Now imagine if we take this scenario where it is dangerous to have underreported numbers and celebrating it, but what if this were an algorithm for weapons or for weather or for any of these things. Like we put people in a lot of danger when we don't have this basic understanding of how data systems work, especially on people who are in the position to make a lot of decisions. So what we want to say that with data, there should be data validation. How do, how do we validate the data that's coming in is actually real, right? It, it's good data. Yeah. So like you said, what seven, anything that's newer than seven days, you can't be trusted because it hasn't been validated yet. Right. So, so is there a process that, that needs to be implemented to validate the data? To say, yeah, Hey, this is, this is legit stuff. Yeah. yeah. So some type of validation process. Yeah. And those and were it, in place in California. It's just that again, this understanding of the reporting, like don't, don't now say, okay, we won't report any data except for seven, you know, seven day old data. We don't want that, but we have to realize making decisions on riskier data is a bias that we want just because the data that worked in your system last month means that this month's data is going to be just as sound. You said something else that I, I, I really liked, Karen. You said, uh, what if there's a bias in the algorithm? 
Well, I, we know for a fact there is bias in algorithms. I, I, it, it's been demonstrated repeatedly. Um, okay, so now we've got a bias in our algorithm, a bias in our data. How do we eliminate those biases? I would put forth the idea that the only way to eliminate these things is to have as many diverse eyes upon these systems as possible, be it the algorithm, be it the data, the data collection, the governance. Uh, you, you know, Karen looks at data, I look at data, I see one thing, she sees another thing. The two executives see two different things. But, but we all have these biases and the only way to, to work through them, I think, is, is again, like an onion, you gotta layer it. Because they have different biases than I do. Maybe they'll see my bias. If they have bias, I'll see theirs. Uh, it's kind of the, the open source model. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, Pumala was kind of getting to that earlier in the discussion. I, I heard, you know, and it kind of, um, it sounds like in a way, the person asking the question is injecting their own bias when they ask the question. So like if the question, for example, unemployment data, right? Is the question, how many people don't have jobs? Or is the question, how many people that want to have jobs don't have jobs? Or is it how many people that want a fulfilling and rewarding job don't have a fulfilling and rewarding job and so on and so on and so on. And so as, as you're saying, Josh, it's, it's really interesting that you bring in this whole idea of like open source and having more eye, eyeballs on the problem. Because to me, that, that really is so true that, you know, you need to have numerous people asking numerous questions in order to get anywhere near the truth. That's all really true. I mean, we found, we know this with engineering systems as well, right? that if we build systems and they all have the same type of point of view when they're being designed, built, tested, and deployed, we end up systems that are op optimized for a subset of the population. Um, just pulling from, from my tradition, it's also asking questions about the questions. And I don't think that even as IT people, we necessarily approach things that way. And what I mean by that is that in, in some Jewish texts, the process is that there's a statement from scripture and then a rabbi will ask a question on it. And immediately in class, when you're going over this, the teacher says, why that question? There were a million questions that you could have asked about this piece of text. Why did he feel it important to ask this question about this right here? What was bothering him so much about that? And then there's another rabbi in the text who will answer and another rabbi will ask another question. And immediately the question is, what about the first answer didn't satisfy the second? Like, why are we doing this? So asking questions about the questions, back to the, to the point about the, the surveys. Of course, we're injecting our own biases, our own points of view, whatever, but having a level of, it's almost like meta-questioning. What, what was this question trying to get at? Why are we, why are we even asking? Isn't it obvious? Shouldn't you already know this thing, you know, and just putting it through those kinds of rigors may help shake some of it out. And, and, and that's, that's funny you say that, that in, in your religion, because I think this is, this is a premise that exists amongst multiple cultures and it's existed at, uh, juvenile in his satires. He said, quis custodiat ipsos custodes, which we know from the comic book, who watches the Watchmen? right? How, how do we eliminate that? 
Do we all become watchers and we're watching the next person? I don't know. Can we automate that? Anyway. Yeah, and the scary part is, like we're talking about algorithms here. So sometimes people write algorithms, but in the AI machine learning world, not only did a person not write the algorithm that's being used in those models, is that we can't even see the algorithm. There's no way to go, you know, it's a computer that learned this stuff that we taught. And we know, like, I wanted to throw in one of the contentious things in the AI world is that they, certain people believe that the algorithms themselves, it's impossible for the algorithm to be biased. The data you feed into the models could be biased, like by only giving photos of people of lighter skin complexion. We know that biases the outcome of those models, but the algorithm itself, because you've just taught it, you've given it stuff to learn from. I'm thinking of some Star Trek episode from the classic series, from the original series that basically had the same thing. But this is where diversity in monitoring the data sets going into learning algorithms is so important. I, I would say that we haven't eliminated bias just because we have an AI algorithm. We've simply virtualized it. I mean, that's a good point. It's just really from my point of view is the bias gets moved. So if I taught someone who was great at coding, here are the rules about coding this um, uh, shopping cart module for a website. I will have bi biased that coder according to how I see shopping and what, you know, should it offer uh, discounts to certain demographics of people? Like if, you know, back in the early Amazon days where they adjusted prices up for their most loyal customers because they could. <laughs> and in theory, they don't do that now. They don't do personally targeted pricing, but we don't know where that's done elsewhere, like insurance companies or any of that stuff, because they're all proprietary algorithms. Well, that's what actuators are for, right? Like that's the whole point is based on a statistical model that we're not going to show you, we are, you know, telling you that your, you know, your rate is this because reasons. And I just want to point in that, make sure we get this in here, the whole off-qual algorithm in the UK that has nearly destroyed, came really close to destroying graduates of what we would consider high school, so pre-college and university, that algorithm, which was written by people, not machine learning, basically was extremely biased against people from more um, uh, less affluent uh, school systems and communities, and it actually lowered their grades by trying to put the grades on a curve and they've had to, they got so much backlash about it. They basically had to throw away the whole algorithm. And this, this whole thing is just thoroughly unsatisfying, I think. And I think that it's, 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 it's obnoxious in a way because we want answers. We want to know things. And what we're saying is not only you know, can't you trust things for the tinfoil hat reasons that somebody's, somebody's trying to manipulate you. You can't even trust things for the reasons, uh, you know, even if they do have the best intentions, even if they do have, you know, good quality sources of information. Um, 
we need to, I, I think, wrap up here. Um, but what I want to do is I want to give each of you a chance to sort of sum up how do we how do we live in this world? How do we move forward in this world when not only can't we trust, you know, the answers, we can't even trust the questions. And I'll, I guess we'll start with, uh, with Pumla. Uh, what do you think? How do we live in this? Oh, wow. Um, it's a tough one, right? We, how, how, do we, how do we navigate through this? In my opinion, get everybody to the table bring all different minds, opinions, viewpoints, because that's going to help eliminate the bias. It, it won't entirely remove the bias. Um, and then the systems, um, the data that's going into the systems, ha have a standard, ha a standardization. Here's what everybody needs to enter, right? And then the questions that everybody's asking. Here's what the, you know, here's the question. It's simple. Like, it just seems like we're, we're so diverse in our questions and we're so diverse with the data that's going in we need to standardize on what's going in so that the stuff that comes out it's the same across the board but be diverse in who's you know who's inputting the data i guess i guess that's the the way the, the diversity of bringing everybody to the table would be the best way to put that and after we get everyone to the table which i absolutely agree with um, I'm going to stick with my, my Shrek uh, analogy, but I'm going to bring in some beetles too, because I think not only does it have to be an onion, but it has to be a glass onion. It has to be transparent through every single layer. If it's not transparent through every single layer, you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know who are the people reviewing my data? Who are the people asking my questions? What might their possible biases be? How can I counteract those biases by utilizing a different layer of my onion? Um, and the one problem with an onion is anytime you bite into one, you will cry. That's so great. I don't know how to top that. Um, I think, so I hate to be one of those panelists that agrees with everything that's been said, but I kind of knew that was going to happen. I think transparency is so important, but there are a lot of systems that can't be publicly transparent, such as proprietary systems within your own companies. And this is where I think it's important for people to speak up during a design meeting when they see a bias being built into the product, whether that's gender bias, uh, orientation bias, um, poverty bias, like anti-poverty processes. I mean, this is the time to raise the issue. And if someone has to whistleblow because something's really going to harm people, we should do that. But we also need to make sure that our public data, that we have access to the raw data and to the reporting systems to see how that raw data is becoming a dashboard. And just to build on that, um, back in fifth grade, a gajillion years ago, we actually had a class on how to read the newspaper. And one of the points of that, which I don't know still happens because newspapers don't happen basically. So one of the things that stuck out for me was the part of the course where we had to learn the difference between ostensibly unbiased news and an editorial and an advertisement. And it was eye-opening as a fifth grader to see how much of the newspaper was made to appear to be news when it was editorial or when it was advertisement and so on and so forth. That hasn't changed. 
Um, it certainly hasn't changed with social media that things appear to be one thing when they're actually another. But I think that it's, it's that kind of skill. And the other thing that jumped out at me from that course was this isn't innate. You have to think about doing it, you have to learn how to do it, and you have to practice doing it. And so while as IT professionals, we can talk about building systems that are transparent and clear, and we need to, we also need as individuals and as members of our family to talk about the ways in which we identify it in the data that is swirling around us and just continue to build that muscle of differentiating and understanding where it's coming from and what might be coming along with it. Yeah, and I think that the, the number one thing that uh, is maybe difficult for some people and especially some personalities to accept is, is just not knowing and knowing that we don't know and knowing that we can't trust things and knowing that we have to move forward based on the best possible information and that that information might change. And the unemployment numbers could be revised downward or the COVID numbers could be revised upward or the system uh, availability numbers could be revised sideways and, and we have to deal with that and we have to accept that and we have to move forward. So thank you very much everyone for listening to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast. As I said, this is part of a special series on social justice with this same group of folks and it's been very, very interesting and enlightening to spend time with them on these topics. If you enjoyed this discussion, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes since that really does help our visibility. And please share this show with your friends. This podcast was brought to you by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage across the enterprise. For show notes and more, go to gestaltit.com slash podcasts.